welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Rachel Maddow, Lachaud, The Young Turks, Counterspin, Ring of Fire, and Tom Hartman. Now we're joined by reporter and author Robert Fisk. He describes himself as, as quote, an, an ever more infuriated bystander. He's a vocal critic of the Iraq war and of Western policy in the Middle East more broadly. He spent the last three decades immersed in Middle Eastern life, war, and politics. He's the Middle East correspondent for the London Independent newspaper. He's based in Beirut now. He's won, he's won more British and international awards for journalism than any other foreign correspondent. Uh, he was just showing off his Farsi skills backstage here at the Rachel Maddow Show. Robert Fisk is also the author most recently of The Great War for Civilization, The Conquest of the Middle East, his latest book, and it is a tome and very interesting. Uh, Robert Fisk joins us this morning to, to talk about the Iraq War, the future of the Middle East, and whether Americans are out of touch with the rest of the world. I think Americans have a pretty shrewd idea. I think what you've got in this country is this huge gap between an electorate that is actually uh, pretty clued up on the rest of the world and the people they elect, the people they send to the hill in Washington, who once they get there don't seem to actually represent the people who voted for them anymore. We have this problem to some extent in Britain, mm -hmm. this kind of gap in this, this breakage or slippage, if you like, in the democratic process, which is very dangerous. I get a lot of readers' letters and more than half of them are from the United States, people who read my reports on, on, on the internet, which mm -hmm. I don't use and hate, but there we go. And um, they're all saying, well, what can we do? How do we make our voice heard? Because we're not represented by our congressman or our congresswoman. And the same I'm getting from, you know, educated, middle-aged British people, uh, not journalists or politicians who say, you know, um, I'm not represented by my MP anymore. I demonstrate against the war. I go with a million other people in the streets of London and nobody cares. And that's a very dangerous situation when you have a country that's, you know, which we believe rightly is a democracy and, and you shouldn't have people who feel they're not represented. But there's a growing number of readers of my newspaper in letters to the editor, for example, and you can, we see, you can see them printed there, which says the same thing over and over again. What can we do? And I, I don't have any answer to that. But at the same, I mean, at the same time, the war has been deeply unpopular in the United States for a long time now. It's been a majority... Because you're losing it, that's why. Well, but it's, and it's been true for a long time, though, that Americans, a majority of Americans, would prefer and have preferred for more than a year now that American troops be withdrawn immediately or certainly within a year. That's been the case, and that's it's not at all represented by our government. And what's happening, though, is that they're starting to change their arguments in response to the arguments of those of us... Well, we've had a whole series out. of arguments. We had weapons of mass destruction. That went out... The, uh, that went into the bin. Yeah. And then we had... Uh, uh, links between Saddam and Al-Qaeda, which was rubbish from the start. Then we had capturing Saddam, which we did, but the trial has turned into a farce. Uh, then we had uh, having democracy, which turns out to have an Iranian-style government in Baghdad. And now the mission is stop the civil war. And the real problem is that if you talk to American soldiers in Iraq, which I do, mm -hmm. they don't believe this stuff anymore. They know, they know it was a country. Well, why do, you think, why do you think that the United States really did go to war in Iraq? Well, look, if the major export of Iraq had been asparagus or carrots. I don't think the 82nd Airborne would be in Mosul and the 3rd Infantry Brigade a division, rather, would be in Baghdad, and you don't think so either. Right. So obviously it was about oil. It clearly it was about oil. But does having permanent U.S. But military does, bases no, in no. Iraq get us that oil? Uh, yes, it could, but it's more than just uh, about oil. It's also about the need of a superpower. The the visceral need of a superpower to project military strength. I, I, I've sat beside the roadways, Highway 8 south of, horrible throat-cutting road south of Baghdad and watched these massive, giant centipede convoys, tens of thousands of troops, tanks, badly fighting armored vehicles. We can go to Baghdad, so we will go to Baghdad. We can destroy Saddam, so we will. The Romans did it, the British did it, the Americans do it. You know, and when you go to Iraq, you look through the other side of the glass, of course. You don't see it through the eyes of the New York Times and CNN and so on, mm -hmm. or Air America. Uh, <laughs> but you, you, you see it through Iraqi eyes. And one Iraqi was asking me last summer in Baghdad, he said, Mr. Robert, can you tell me something? Why are the American military, he meant in some form, you know, air bases or special forces or infantry divisions, why are they in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, Turkey, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Algeria, they are there near Taman Ras in the southern Sahara, special forces base. They're in Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Yemen, 
why are they there? There's an iron curtain built right through the Middle East. In case you're just joining us, our guest is Robert Fisk. He's a journalist for the Independent Newspaper based in London, also the author most recently of The Great War for Civilization, The Conquest of the Middle East. Well, we have some more than 700 bases abroad to which we admit Iraq, obviously, we're building 14 military bases that we admit that will be permanent there. We're building a billion-dollar embassy there. We'll see about that, but yes, I agree. We'll try we think that we think that's permanent, yeah. And it, and it could be that we're filling in a, a link on this chain that we're, that we're, that we're putting down, a, an iron curtain, as you say, across the globe. Well, it certainly surrounds Iran, doesn't it? Yeah. Because the Iranians have got the Americans north of them. They've got them in the west in Iraq. They've got them in the east in Afghanistan. They've got the fleet off the southern Iranian coast. So, But if it's about proximity to Iran, for example, mm -hmm. does it help us that much more in the grand scheme of things if we're in Iraq versus just, just being in Kuwait? Well, in Washington, they think so. Why? I mean, why would it? How look, could it? Look, this is an ideological war in Iraq. That's why it's all gone wrong. And you can't fight ideological wars. The Romans tried it and they screwed it up. The British always wanted to try it and they screwed it up. Um, but the real issue is not Iran at all. Iran hasn't broken the law over nuclear weapons yet. Um, the real issue is Pakistan. This is a Muslim state which really is extreme, which has thousands of Taliban supporters and Al-Qaeda supporters within the security forces, which has a dictator, President General Perez Musharraf, yeah. who may or may not be toppled, and has a nuclear bomb. And we're not worried about Pakistan. We're worried about Iran, which hasn't yet even broken the law on nuclear weapons. Because the real narrative, you see, is that Pakistan is the weak link we should really be frightened of. But because it's on, quote, our side, unquote, in the, quote, war on terror, unquote, right. we, don't worry, we don't worry about Pakistan. We should. I wish I felt like the neoconservative project, the, the American ideological orientation to the rest of the world right now, was about nuclear containment, was about safety, was about, you know... No, 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 know, no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Where America could do a lot of good is if it thought less about democracy and more about justice. Because when you talk to the Muslims of the Middle East, they talk about justice first. Mm -hmm. You can't found democracy on sand. It has to be founded on justice. And we can't deal with that issue because we're so deeply involved in the injustices of the Middle East for right. the last 80 years that we can't deal with it. So we, we keep saying, oh, we want to give democracy to the Arabs. Uh, that's what the British said when they invaded in 1917 in the First World <laughs> War. You know, I've got a poster put up by General Sir Angus Maud, Commander of British Forces, Iraq, 1917. To the people of Baghdad, we come here not as conquerors, but as liberators to free you from generations of tyranny. Signed, Angus Maud, not George W. Bush, but Angus right. Maud. Then we had an insurgency, and we ended up by destroying Fallujah, a city which you became faintly familiar with, right? Yeah. And, and, and we even had a British military intelligence in Baghdad in 1920, telling the War Department in London that terrorists were crossing the border from Syria. And we had the British Prime Minister Lloyd George standing up in the House of Commons saying, if British troops leave Iraq now, there will be civil war. Uh, exactly. So right. you even knew what Lloyd George said before I said, you see, right. that's how fingerprint power, but we don't care about history anymore. History is, uh, history is a dead book. Well, what happened? What happened when they did leave? Uh, we had to use air power to destroy whole villages, uh, including lots of civilians, a lot, lot of collateral damage, that yeah. obscene and sickening word which television likes to use a lot, and radio too, and newspaper men. Um, what, what, what did happen to the British? Uh, we set up a puppet government, um, a whole series of deals over the future control of Iraqi oil. Mm -hmm. uh, we maintained RAF bases, like the famous lily pads of Donald Rumsfeld, yeah. uh, which later on became fighter bomber bases for Saddam Hussein, of course. And then eventually, um, our creation, which was the Kingdom of Iraq, was torn to pieces, and the king was gunned down and shot by the predecessors of Mr. Saddam, whom we then adopted, of course, and gave chemical weapons to. And then he invaded Iran, and we loved him. Then he invaded the wrong country, Kuwait, so we hated him and got rid of him. Welcome to the Middle East. What's your Robert Fisk best case scenario for Iraq starting today? Get out. Americans look, get out. Yes, look, we, we say Arabs want freedom. Yes, they do. They would like some of our democracy. They'd like a couple of packages of human rights off our Western supermarket shelves. But they would also like freedom from us. Self-determination. They would like us not to arrive with our tanks and our guns and our swords and our horses and our Apache helicopters. And we always turn up with our weapons and announce we're going to free people. We're always going to give freedom to Arabs and we never actually seem to give it to them. And they've got wise to it and we haven't. America leaves, the coalition troops leave. Ten, in, in ten years from the date of departure, what does Iraq look like in your mind? Oh, it'll probably be an Islamic state. Yeah. Uh, there will be, uh, a, it'll be a joint Sunni-Shiite uh, government. I don't think Iraqis want a civil war. Shiites and Sunnis fought together for eight years against their fellow Muslims in Iran. Yeah. And the country did not have a civil war and break apart.
Robert Fisk is a journalist for The Independent in London, has an incredible American following. Uh, you may not enjoy the Internet, but we enjoy you. And they can read my book, too, American <laughs> Publishers. The Great War for Civilization, The Conquest of the Middle East is Robert Fisk's latest book. Thank you so much for being here. It's a real pleasure to meet you. Thank You're you. welcome. Thank you. Well, I'm, I, I guess that's because you didn't listen to the opening monologue. From the paramu- former paramutual window of the New Orleans Fairgrounds Racetrack, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming in New Orleans, Louisiana, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of Le Show. And now, news from outside the bubble. It's bubblicious this week, I'll tell you. General Pervez Perv Musharraf of Pakistan facing a surge of anti-American sentiment. Why would that be? This week warned that covert U.S. airstrikes against al-Qaeda inside Pakistan were an infringement of his national sovereignty. That's our friend, ladies and gentlemen. There's al-Qaeda inside Pakistan? Admitting that his popularity was waning, The Pakistani president insisted he was not a poodle of George Bush and rejected accusations he was running a military dictatorship. He overthrew the elected president five or six years ago, and he's a general. But it's not a military dictatorship. Speaking to the British newspaper The Guardian, weeks after a tense visit by the U.S. president to Pakistan that brought down a torrent of criticism in his own country, General Musharraf insisted he's his own man. It's not a question of being a poodle. I'm nobody's poodle, he said. I have enough strength of my own to lead. He pledged to hold free and fair elections next year, as urged by George Bush. It's ironic, he says. Oh, he seized power in 1999, yes. It's ironic that I'm sitting in uniform talking of democracy, he says, but to bring democracy into Pakistan, I thought I needed it, he said. Pakistan faces criticism from the U.S. and Afghanistan for not doing enough to flush extremists from its tribal areas. Musharraf insisted in his interview there was no question of Pakistan submitting to American scrutiny and said claims that his government acted at Washington's bidding were nonsense. He added there's a growing problem of Talibanization in the tribal area of Pakistan known as Waziristan. Talibanization, ladies and gentlemen. Perv is nobody's poodle. Now, to uh, uh, the U.S. State Department, uh, in reports that made very little news here, but made big news outside the bubble, hence the name of the feature, the U.S. State Department acknowledged that there is a risk of Iran becoming a safe haven for terrorists three years after the invasion of the country. The warning is contained in the State Department's annual report on terrorism. The report documents an increase in terrorist attacks worldwide, and it appears, says the British news, one new British newspaper, The Guardian, to undermine repeated claims by President Bush that the U.S. is winning the war on terrorism. The report says, quote, Iraq is not currently a terrorist safe haven, but terrorists view Iraq as a potential safe haven and are attempting to make it a reality. The uh, British newspaper The Times, owned by Rupert Murdoch, headlines that U.S. admits Iraq is terror cause. The U.S. administration acknowledged that the war has become a cause for Islamic extremists worldwide and that there is a risk of the country becoming a safe haven. So it's, The figures in the State Department's annual report on terror represent a four fold rise in terrorist incidents worldwide compared with 2004. We, I think, had that on last week. Elsewhere outside the bubble, more. Sure, there's more. Dateline, Canada. Yes, Canada is not the United States, but sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. The Canadian media will be barred from an Ontario airfield this week when the bodies of four Canadian soldiers killed in Afghanistan over the weekend arrive home. 
the conservative government's decision to keep the public from seeing the images of flag-draped coffins follows the announcement that the Peace Tower flag, I guess that's a flag in Canada, will not be flown at half-mast to mark the deaths of the soldiers. The Peace Tower flag will instead only be lowered once a year on Remembrance Day. Until it's changed, until I forget. The uh, move mirrors the practice that's controversial in the United States, as we know. And has prompted opposition critics to accuse the new Canadian government of trying to hide the human cost of Canada's mission in Afghanistan. But Canada, ladies and gentlemen, is nobody's poodle. It's our Shih Tzu. We're going to get back to Rumsfeld and all your calls in a second. I just want to remind everybody, uh, new shirts are coming. Everybody, get a, look at this. Get out of control. What are they? Uh, they are uh, females. Uh, they're for the girls. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're fun. They're, li- they're light blue, which is cute. Light what blue, cute, this? Young Turks t-shirts. Everybody go nuts. Uh, you can buy them at theyoungturks.com. I'm this not saying This is a anything. girl's shirt? Yes. I thought girl's shirts were supposed to be smaller. Well, that was for a larger girl. Oh. It's a large. You see that it says large. Yeah, was she a great big girl? Um, I'm just making sure. No, no, there's small ones, too. Yeah, yeah, because look, totally, look, look at the sleeves. sleeves. The yeah, sleeves are totally much uh, okay. shorter. They're for honeys. And on the back, uh, there's a little kind of a cool little uh, just a, a TYT, a little uh, TYT uh, logo on the shirt. So when you're walking away and guys are checking out your ass, they'll, they'll look up and they'll be like, hey, what the hell's that? All right, enough of that. And by the way, everybody, if you're a member, check out the members-only thing we did last time. It was a lot of fun. All right, now, uh, Ben's got a great quote on Rumsfeld before we move on. Remember, in the last uh, Limbaugh uh, conversation we heard with Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld said, hey, listen, you know, uh, we're winning every battle on the battlefield, and I don't know what people are complaining about. Uh, and Rumsfeld, the member, he was talking about how people don't know enough about history. Mm-hmm. That was his main thing. And uh, I have a lot of things on how Don Rumsfeld doesn't know history, but I'll go to what you're talking about here. He... Uh, he says, uh, uh, speaking of people rooted in history, as Rumsfeld put it, this is a couple of months uh, ago when he made this statement, exactly what kind of thing you're referring to, made this in March of this year, last month. Uh, the enemy cannot win a single conventional battle, so they challenge us through non-traditional asymmetric means using terror as their weapon of choice. Oh, of course! Oh, they, they, don't, they can't beat us in a, uh, a fight with our uh, planes. That's because they don't have planes. They can't beat our tanks. That's because they don't have tanks. How did you expect them to fight? Did you think that they would build planes in Fallujah and launch them in the sky? I will take you on in a conventional fight. Of course they're going to take you on in an unconventional fight. And this guy's surprised by that. And then he brags about, oh, they cannot beat our tanks. Yeah, and this is in the middle of him talking about how uh, everybody's a big idiot who doesn't know history. Mm-hmm. And then he says this, right, what I just told you, that they cannot, so they challenge us through non-traditional asymmetric means using terror. So he read these lines, it says here, as if the first clause were a boast, the enemy cannot win a single conventional battle, and the second clause was an accusation of unfair behavior. Right. <laughs> like, like, they can't beat us, and they cheat. It's yeah. essentially what he's saying. Uh, we uh, attacked them when they were absolutely no threat to us. But they're cheating by using unconventional, uh, you know, ways of fighting. So this is embarrassment to America. This clown of a Secretary of Defense, and I have no trouble saying that anymore. Uh, Fred Kaplan in uh, Slate writes, uh, doesn't Rumsfeld, I'm reading from a Fred Kaplan piece in Slate. Uh, He writes, uh, doesn't Rumsfeld remember the famous story about Colonel Harry Summers' conversation at the four-party military talks in Hanoi, Vietnam, 1975, April? just after President Ford conceded defeat in the war. Colonel Summers, April 75, then the chief of the U.S. delegation's negotiating team, so our top negotiator, was chatting with the Vietnamese chief negotiator, Colonel Tu. And Summers says to Tu, you know, Colonel, you never defeated us on the battlefield. And Colonel Tu replies, that may be so, but it's also irrelevant. And again, the significance of that is, it's not just two Yetzes talking, they're talking at, after Gerald Ford conceded defeat in Vietnam. We'd lost, and they're right. They never can. They, we, they didn't defeat us on the battlefield. We won every battle. 
it's you know I hope I don't butcher the the name here, but it's kind of like the when uh, the French bragging uh, in World War II, they never defeated us in the Maginot Line. Yeah, yeah, that's because they went around it and took your uh, whole country in about two or three days, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, but they never defeated us in the trenches that we built. Yeah, Congratulations. But that doesn't matter because you lost. Yeah, and, and, and I love the, the point that Fred Kaplan makes here. When Rumsfeld said, the enemy cannot win a single conventional battle, so they challenge us through non-traditional asymmetric means using terror. He read those lines as if the first clause were a boast and the second clause were an accusation of unfair behavior. It really is. We're awesome. <laughs> and they cheat. It doesn't matter if you lose, it is irrelevant. So, yeah. Colonel 2, that may be so, but it is also irrelevant. Now, also, these two items, which need to be uh, brought, brought to your attention in tandem for their comic value, Dateline Washington, an American initiative to use private security companies to protect Iraq's oil and power infrastructure, collapsed amid reports of possible fraud, missing weapons, and destroyed documents, according to a federal audit reported in the Los Angeles Dog Trainer. The program was named Task Force Shield. The U.S. paid two security firms $147 million, <laughs> chicken feed, to train and equip uh, tens of thousands of Iraqis to safeguard oil pipelines and transmission powers. The U.S. government's efforts, quote, ultimately proved to be unsuccessful, says the report by the Special Inspector General for the Reconstruction of Iraq. He's going to be busy. Quote, the lack of records and equipment accountability raises significant concerns about possible fraud, waste, and abuse by U.S. and Iraqi officials. Task Force Shield was disbanded in April 2005. Its former commanders could not be reached for comment on Saturday. Hey, Saturday's a good golf day. The chief executive of Erinis, E-R-I-N-Y-S, the company responsible for training guards to protect Iraq's oil system, strenuously defended its work, saying it had fulfilled all the terms of its contract and delivered a functioning security force. Officials with ASARS, a green-built Maryland company hired to protect Iraq's electrical grid, could not be reached for comment. The audit is the latest account of poor oversight by the United States in the reconstruction of Iraq, an effort plagued by reports of billions of dollars of waste, fraud, and abuse. Now, lest you think that the government is not concerned about its money, comes this. Nearly 900 soldiers wounded in Iraq and Afghanistan have been saddled with government debt as they've recovered from the war. A report describes collection notices going out to veterans with brain damage, paralysis, lost limbs, and shrapnel wounds. The report by the Government Accountability Office details how long-recognized problems with military computer systems led to the soldiers being dunned for an array of debts related to everything from errors in paychecks to equipment left behind on the battlefield. Soldiers' complaints began to surface last year. Several lawmakers have become involved. The new report shows a problem more widespread than previously known. Hundreds of separated battle-injured soldiers were pursued for collection of military debts incurred through no fault of their own, the report said. The figures sh uh, show 900 battle-wounded troops tagged with debt. Debt. It's unconscionable, says Ryan Kelly, a retired staff sergeant who lost a leg to a roadside bomb and then spent more than a year trying to fend off a debt of $2,200. It's sad that we'd let that happen. The underlying problem, want to say this together, an antiquated computer system for paying and tracking members of the military. Pay records are not integrated with personnel records, creating numerous errors. So, we may have lost billions in the uh, training of Iraqi security guards, but we're getting it back one injured American soldier at a time. Here we go again. Supporters of the Iraq War are falling back on the theory that the war's not actually going as badly as it seems. 
No, the real problem is the news media's relentless negativity. This round seemed to kick off with right-wing talker Laura Ingram's appearance on NBC's Today Show, where she laid out her case by, among other things, calling for Today host Matt Lauer to go to Iraq, something he'd already done. This wasn't Ingram's first dubious pronouncement on the subject. On Fox's The O'Reilly Factor on February 14th, she claimed that journalists could tell the good news if they wanted, citing ABC's Bob Woodruff's decision to go out with Iraqi security forces as an example. Woodruff, of course, was nearly killed in the process. This kind of criticism is hardly worth responding to seriously. But that didn't stop ABC's Good Morning America from devoting segments on March 22nd and 23rd to addressing the concerns of their viewers, who think they're somehow hiding the good news. Often, these critics suggest that the media should spend more time covering the reconstruction projects, which would show the positive side of the war. But there are some other factors worth considering. For starters, the former press attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad told the American Journalism Review that U.S. officials stopped taking reporters out on such trips for fear of making reconstruction projects targets for insurgents. And even more importantly, consider a recent USA Today report, which recalled some unpleasant facts about the state of reconstruction in Iraq. Electricity production is lower than before the war. Only about a third of the scheduled water projects were completed, and just 77,000 jobs were created, far below the 1.5 million projected. Those figures all come from the U.S. government. If anything, more media coverage of reconstruction would make things in Iraq sound even worse. But critics like Laura Ingram could blame the media for that, too. Now, look, here's the deal. Rumsfeld uh, doesn't care about the ideology. That's interesting. I just read a story about this the other day. And it's he's not... It turns out, and never really quite has been, and we knew that from the get-go, one of the uh, neocon ideologues. Yeah. In fact, he fired Fife and kind of squeezed out Wolfowitz, and then the neocons wrote all the articles. I knew he was a neocon. The minute I saw Bill Crystal, who's pretty much ideologically speaking the top neocon, wrote an editorial about how Rumsfeld should be fired, and he didn't do that recently. He did that over a year ago. That's right. Okay. So I knew there was a rift right there, but now I'm reading more about it, and Rumsfeld never really cared about the idea. Ideology, it turns out. What he wanted to do, and i got to tell you, we said this from the beginning. We weren't sure which ideological camp he was in, if he was part of that. But we said his main motivation, three years ago we had it. Why? Because, again, we read the, uh, the articles that t- talked about it. But now it's confirmed. His main motivation was he wanted to test out his new army, he his wanted- new toys, and his new way of doing things. He believed, hey, we don't need all these soldiers to go topple a two-bit dictator like Saddam. We could do it with 150,000. And Shinseki and the other generals said, hey, Secretary Rumsfeld, we're not disagreeing with you, but you need the more soldiers to take care of the country and to contain it. And After he said, ah, I got toys to test. But they never talked about post-game. I mean, what, what, what was it in the slideshow? It was like to be announced later? Yeah. No, that's exactly right. They did a, a little slideshow for the top generals in South Carolina right before the war. Three phases of the war uh, clearly explained. The fourth phase was post-war occupation or you know post-war planning, and it said to be determined later. I mean, my God, that's 90% of the ballgame, not 10% of the ballgame. Don Rumsfeld wanted a practice war. That's... No... Jesus Christ, make a goddamn clip out of that. That is exactly right, okay? And I never thought about it that way, but he wanted to try things out. He wanted to practice, and that's why what the the caller just said is exactly right. That's a direct quote. Mm-hmm. When they said, how about Afghanistan, he said, there are no targets in Afghanistan. So I need targets. And rocky and there are all these caves. So he went to Iraq for a practice war with a lot of targets. I mean, if that doesn't make you sick... Then you're not paying attention. The Pamp Attack.
You know, we're getting a glimpse of just how desperate the GOP is becoming to hold on to all that power they were able to squander in the short six years they've occupied Washington. Their corruption, their fraud campaigns, and their predictable overreaching for more power has this far-right Bush Republican agenda looking like yesterday's news in only six years. Understand, it took the Democrats 40 years to collapse in their own vacuum. That's only because the Democrats forgot what they stood for, not because they were corrupt. So what we see is a frantic GOP scrambling, now laying down their best hand and hoping their old reliable fear card can be used at least one more time in the 2000s. 2006 elections. Rove is still counting on the possibility that it can scare the hell out of soccer moms and continue to befuddle and confuse Americans who are still incapable of realizing that Iraq has nothing at all to do with 9-11. Rove knows it's a tough sell this time, but Rove and his ilk have always relied on the idea that Americans have become so uneducated, so uninformed, and so disconnected from what's happening politically in America that they can be manipulated by the hand of good old, reliable, fear-mongering. The truth is it works pretty well with the majority of Americans who can name all the people on the front of People magazine, but can't name one single cabinet member or even give you the name of their congressman or their senator. Rove has squeezed political gold out of that huge void that's been created by ignorance in America over the last decade, so the 2006 election cycle is not going to be any different. As I speak, Carl Rove is doing saturation airtime buys in Minnesota for their newest terrorism scare plan. It's a TV ad that features the Twin Towers burning in the background, a Republican pitchman ominously asking the question of soccer moms, where do you want to fight terrorism, in Iraq or on American soil? Gee, let me think about that one just for a minute. Well, well of course, Iraq sounds pretty good. No matter that every political committee who studied the 9-11 attack says Iraq has zero to do with international terrorism. No matter that Iraq was never a staging ground for 9-11, nor did Iraq have any connection at all to bin Laden. The slogan for the ad screams out, Iraq, the front line in the war on terror. It's a new argument that Karl Rove has dreamed up for why Bush has allowed 35,000 American soldiers to be either killed or crippled in this war for Exxon. The WMD argument didn't work. The Saddam bin Laden friendship co-conspirator argument, it didn't work either. The argument that Iraq deserves a democracy is an argument that most Americans could really care less about when you ask them. So brand new from the boogeyman GOP is that if we don't fight the terrorists in Iraq, they're going to start bombing us here, as if that was Bush's plan all along, when we all know Bush never had a plan all along. In other words, America needs a permanent, unending war in Iraq to prevent another terrorist attack in the U.S. But every terrorist analyst who comments on that typical kind of Bush babble agrees that that caliber of reasoning sounds ridiculous even in Bush world because everybody who's paying attention really knows if we want to head off terrorism we'd have to attack and occupy Saudi Arabia. But we can't do that because the sheiks in that desert real estate are being run by the shrubs' closest personal friends. So if terrorists want to attack America they won't originate in Iraq. They'll come from places like Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia, just like they did last time. And it's pretty obvious to even the most casual observer that every day we spend in Iraq, we're increasing the numbers of Muslim teenagers who believe it's their mission to die for Allah. We've virtually created a terrorist training industry, the likes of which have never existed until the shrub lied his way into this Iraq disaster. More importantly, the real terrorism experts, not the rove politicos, have pointed out how America has left itself more exposed on our own soil because we've shifted so many assets away from protection of our shipping ports. Less than 5% of imported cargo is ever searched for nuclear chemical weapons. We've shifted assets away from our nation's chemical and nuclear plants, and now they're prime targets for terrorism. The shrub has moved virtually all protection away from those two places because we literally can't afford to pay for needed protection as we spend $300 billion a year in Iraq and as our deficit reaches $8 trillion. And more importantly, the infrastructure for our military National Guard is in shambles. And even most military observers say that the U.S. military is now spread so thin that we're incapable of even responding to Hurricane Katrina, much less a terrorism disaster. So when the new GOP scare campaigns come to your hometown this summer, realize that we 
really do have a lot to be terrified about, but the biggest terror isn't an organization in Fallujah. What really should scare the hell out of you is sitting right there in the Oval Office in our nation's capital. The PAP Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info. percent of people of uh, registered voters in a recent poll said Republicans 39 percent said uh, Republicans are the, are the are the are the party that they would vote for in their district in their district versus 54 percent for the Democrats uh, issues offering solutions to the USA's most important issues. Democrats, 42%. Republicans, 33%. Putting the country's in- interest ahead of its own. 37% Democrats, 28% Republicans. Dealing with corruption in government, 32% Democrats, 26% Republicans. Working with the other party to get things done, 31% Democrats, 21, 27% uh, Republicans. Uh, how how respondents said about voting now compared with previous elections, this is all in today's USA Today, 46% more enthusiastic about voting now than in previous elections. 39% less enthusiastic. Democrats, 50% more enthusiastic. Republicans, only 38% more enthusiastic. 46% of Republicans less enthusiastic about voting. <laughs> Bad news. Bad news because the Republicans, I mean, you know, what they're all about their key strategy, as Paul Weyrich pointed out way, way back, you know, almost a decade ago, the chief Republican strategist, the architect of the so-called Reagan Revolution, the, the chief direct mail fundraising guy, Paul Weyrich for the Republican Party, speaking before a Republican group meeting in a church, Paul Weyrich said that the Republican strategy is all about getting people not to show up to vote. And if you can get people not to show up to vote, but the Republicans continue to show up to vote, but the vast majority of Americans don't, well, well, as uh, here's in his own words. Have what I call the goo-goo. Now many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome. Good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. And uh, now, how enthusiastic are you about voting in the next election? More enthusiastic or less enthusiastic than in previous elections? Democrats, half of them, more enthusiastic. Republicans, only 38% more enthusiastic. This has got to be bad news. And therefore, therefore, the big buzz is going to be, if they, can, if they can roll it out, if they can get the media to go along with it, the administration is going to crank up another, you know, bin Laden aid. They're going to drag out another number two guy in Al-Qaeda. Oh, we got another one. You know, things aren't going so good. Carl Rove, his fifth appearance before the grand jury, looks like this Friday. The grand jury is going to meet, may, down hand, may hand down an indictment of Carl Rove. The polls are looking bad, a particularly bad poll in today's paper. The Republicans fighting among themselves about illegal immigration. you got the corporatists on the one hand who want to have a, a Bracero program, a guest worker program, so that they can continue to drive down the cost of labor in the United States. And you have, on the other hand, uh, the racists who are you know, frantic about all these brown people coming into the country. The, the racist versus, versus corporatist contingent on the Republican side. They're, just, they're melting down. They're not having a good time. So what do you do? Roll out somebody associated with bin Laden. And gee, look at this. Mustafa said Marian Nasser, a Syrian who also holds Spanish citizenship, 
uh, was captured uh, back in November of 2005. But they're going to tell us about it today. Because they kind of sit on these things until it's time to roll out some news. Senior Pakistani intelligence official told the AP from the capital Islamabad that Nasser had been flown out of Pakistan to an undisclosed location some time ago. But now the Bushies, uh, hey, where's a, we need a, we need our seventh number two at Al-Qaeda to roll out here. Uh, the news for Karl Rove is getting bad. Come on, give us something. The Pakistani official says he's, he'd been interrogated by us. He's been interrogated by the Americans. He was arrested back in November of last year. But with much pomp and circumstance, well, it'll be interesting to see. My guess is that the corporate mainstream pro-Bush media in the United States is going to bite at this and bite hard. They're going to say, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, look at that. We've got another number two in Al-Qaeda. Amazing. Apparently, the United States of America and Jerusalem Post is reporting this, as well as uh, one other publication in Israel. Um, the United States of America has asked Turkey for permission to use their airfields when we do airstrikes on Iran. You don't ask for permission to do airstrikes from Turkey unless you're getting awfully close to actually doing those Or you're posturing. I mean... Well, for reasons like this, I mean, to let them no, know. No, 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 no. There's normal posturing. There's normal military planning. And that's what the Republican excuse has been for uh, the last couple of months. Oh, you guys are getting all worked out. We've got military plans to attack every country in the world. We could, you know, Brazil, Canada, Pentagon's got it all planned out. This uh, attack on Iran, the plan is no big deal. Yeah, but we didn't go ask Turkey if we could bomb Russia, right? And we didn't go ask, you know... Canada if we could bomb Greenland. <laughs> this is a very specific and very serious request to ask a fellow NATO country and a Muslim country, hey, by the way, do you mind if we use your airfields to launch airstrikes against Iran? The last time we made such a request was a couple of months before we launched the invasion of Iraq. And so what did you say when they asked? <laughs> I didn't say anything. Well. But I found out in the Jerusalem Post that Abdullah, Abdullah Gül Gül? Uh, Gül. The, the, yeah, the, the arbitrary ending of names with one L like that is silly, but go ahead. <laughs> of all the things to complain about the Turks, you found a new one. Uh, Gül, uh, Abdullah Gül, surprisingly pleasant name. Abdullah, mm, questionable, but Gül means rose or smile in Turkish. Uh, apparently was not smiling. He said, uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, we're not going to let you use our airfields. Uh, to launch a military strike against a neighboring Muslim country that's going to do nothing but cause calamity in this region and wind up doing tremendous damage to our country. No, thank you. No, you are not allowed. And, by the way, get this piece of irony. What we offered them to do it was a nuclear reactor inside Turkey. Yeah. Said if you let if we let you and see so this is why it's not ordinary planning we're negotiating right <laughs> okay they said in Sinop which is in the Black Sea coast of Turkey we'll build a nuclear the U S will build a nuclear reactor for you if you allow us to do bombings to make sure that Iran does not have a nuclear reactor right now what kind of sense does that make right I'm a Turkish American right I suppose you know if I was like other people I should beat my chest yes Turkey needs nuclear reactor. Blah. Right? No. Turkey does not need a nuclear reactor. I like your imitation of some Turkish guy. <laughs> well, I know a lot of Turks, trust yeah. me. <laughs> okay. No, the last thing in the world the Middle East needs is another nuclear reactor. That's what we're trying to prevent in Iran. The sane people are trying to prevent it in a diplomatic way. The insane people are saying, we'll build new ones for other countries if they let us do possible nuclear strikes against Iran for trying to build a nuclear reactor. It's just absolute insanity. Are you trying to tell me we should take one call before this break? I am indeed. I'm fighting for Chris from Virginia because he wants to talk about this. He's online too. He's from Virginia where they have a fine university. Chris, how are you? Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. <laughs> I'm curious to know why we would ask Turkey to use their airstrips 
if Iraq has, you know, lots of airstrips and we actually occupy Iraq and it's fairly <laughs> close to Iran. That's a really great point. <laughs> now, it, look, it's a very fair question, but there's a great answer to it. The answer is if we launch uh, airstrikes from inside Iraq to Iran, that will ruin any chance of our success in Iraq. Because then everybody in Iraq will say, oh, wait a minute. So this wasn't about helping us to become a democracy. This was so you could build airstrips in Iraq, uh, which you're now occupying, and use it to attack a neighboring country, which is also majority Shiite. I'm that not would sa- be I'm not disastrous. Satis- I'm not satisfied with your answer. That's the only reason. I think it's a great question from Chris. Because the, uh, the point is, I mean, this is not going to be the only thing that destroys our chances in Iraq. Our chances no, in Iraq no, no, are no. terrible right now. So. Our chances in Iraq are terrible, but look, I'm if I'm being dead serious, Michael, when I say... No, I, I'm not... I'm, no, I'm, no, they, we... Every one of our troops in Iraq would instantly become a target for everybody in Iraq, the Shiites and the Sunnis, if we launch strikes in Iran through our uh, the occupation we have in Iraq. No, that does make it, sense. It, it would just, be a yeah. devastatingly bad idea. Yeah, but I, I, I think that that is the answer. but Not, not that it really has to do with our necessarily our success rate or not. I mean, our success rate in Iraq is not determined by the fact that we're staying away from Iran right now. Well, that's not going to make us successful, but we, at least some people in the administration, have enough sense to realize if you want to guarantee failure, the way you would do it is to launch strikes in Iran through Iraq. Right. Through our forces in Iraq. This is Cenk Uger from the Young Turks. The Best of the Left podcast is Awesome. After listening to these clips, go to our website at theyoungturks.com. Since the cable networks refuse to put a liberal talk show on the air, we put one on the Internet. You can watch the Young Turks live every day from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And please support the show by becoming a member or purchasing Young Turks merchandise. All at theyoungturks.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, let me just first say that I love you guys. I... I've been doing this for just a few months, and, uh, you know, everybody who's written in, you know, emails, comments, reviews, the whole thing, I mean, everybody has just been overwhelmingly supportive and really just great. And, um, you know, over over the months, I've, I've uh, you know, kind of put out the request for some uh, some help on the show every once in a while, and people respond, and... Uh, you know, it's it's really just amazing what can happen when you get a bunch of people, you know, motivated as, as we all are right now. So so politically motivated that uh, that a a simple uh, show like like the one I'm putting together can really uh, you know bring out uh, you know some some really wonderful heartfelt uh, responses from people, and I just want to. You know, first of all, put out a blanket statement that I really, really appreciate all of the uh, the positive feedback and support that I get from you guys, and uh, so I just thought that was important to mention. Um, I really love uh, getting to know you guys too. You know, those of you who I've actually had a little bit of a correspondence with. Um, you know, it's it's great. You know, all, all these people from all over the country, and you know, maybe eventually the world. You know, uh, people I never would have uh, had contact with before. Um, it's really exciting. So, you know, in getting to know those of you who I have gotten to know, I've, I've pretty much deduced that, you know, at least 99% of my audience is, you know, like-minded and, and you know, liberal people. So, you know, it... it it's only a, a short step from there to to um, excuse me deduce that um, you know you're all I mean practically all of you you know eighty five percent or higher are you know probably you know unemployed lazy um, you know dependent on like big government uh, you know federal grants and stuff for you to you know pursue your art career and stuff like that and so I was thinking. That, um, you know, since since most of you are probably uh, unemployed, crusty hippies anyways, 
maybe some of you would be interested in helping me uh, design some t-shirts, uh, other type of, uh, you know, promotional uh, things like that. You know, maybe I can put a store together and, uh, and actually help, uh, you know, offset the cost of running this show. So if, uh, if any of you would like to put your otherwise wasted uh, artistic talents to use, um, send me an email because uh, I've, I've, I just actually, you know, I'm talking about this now. I got an email today from a guy with a, with a suggestion for a, a t-shirt slogan, which I really liked. And I've actually had a few other ideas kind of bouncing around in my head, but I don't have any time to actually pursue things like that. So if you're interested in, in helping out in that way, or in any other way, I mean, like I said, uh, I've, I've got plenty to do. Everything from promotion to production uh, of the show, uh, there's there's lots of stuff that, that I could use uh, help on, and none of it's hard, and, it, you know, it's just when you add them all together, and, and I have to do everything myself, then it just gets a little uh, time-consuming. So um, what I would really like to do is just spread the load and, and make this a sustainable project for myself, which at the uh, time being, it is not <laughs> uh, not sustainable at all. Um, I really don't have much of a uh, you know, a life outside of, uh, doing this podcast, which is fine. I mean, I, I totally expected it. I, I, and I love doing it. Um, the whole, the whole idea is to, uh, completely bust my ass for as long as it takes to get this show off the ground. And then once it's off the ground, uh, to, to get some help from the outside, um, with, uh, you know, lo lots of different things. So, um, if you're interested in that, let me reiterate that I'm not looking for like major heavy lifting or you know commitments in time or or anything like that. So uh, so if you're interested in helping out in any way, send me an email or you know like I said, I love those comments. Um, so you can leave comments at Podcast Alley when you vote or uh, reviews on iTunes or just send me an email directly at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. That's the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, if it's in the evening on the Pacific coast of the United States, I will probably get your email the moment you send it because I am glued to my laptop making this damn show. So... Um, I think that's all I've got for today. I'm sure I forgot something, but uh, luckily I make one of these fucking shows every day, so I'll um, talk to you again very soon. Have a good one, everybody.